If you will, please open your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we'll be covering verses 28 to 40, which is a fairly large portion of Scripture. I've mentioned to you, especially in the last couple of messages, that there are continual ironies within John's gospel. And John 18, verses 28 to 40 is certainly no different. I assume you know what an irony is. It's using words or concepts to convey the opposite of its true meaning or understanding. A a story, we might say, could have a very ironic twist to it. It's maybe someone saying uh, when they've had just a horrible night, and you ask them how their night was, and they said, oh, everything was just fine. Maybe uh, with a tinge of sarcasm. The irony, of course, is that it's opposite of such a meaning. And John is, is likened unto many ironies as he pins his gospel account. This is uh, his forte, we might say. And I see six of them here in the text of John chapter 18, verses 28 to 40. You follow along as I read from the Word of God. John 18, 28, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world." Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Six ironies fill the text of John 18, verses 28 to 40. And here's the first one. Let's call it the irony of Passover. The irony of Passover. In verse 28, 
As I just read, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. If you remember, he was first questioned by Annas and then his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So he had some hearings before the Jews, and now he's going straight to the Roman governor, Pilate. And he's led from Jesus, uh, excuse me, Jesus is led from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, John says. Uh, They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. You say, what's the irony of this? Here it is. Isn't it ironic that the Jews were more concerned about defiling their hands, their bodies, so that they could righteously celebrate Passover at the expense of using their defiled, guilty hands for bringing Jesus here in the first place? It's very ironic. They were always, these Jews, so fastidious about the idea of keeping the law, right? Especially the Pharisees, doing everything that they could to make sure that they were keeping all of the minute elements of the law, including uh, these high and holy feast days, and most especially Passover. You say, what's Passover? That Passover, when God passed over the Jews when they were in bondage in Egypt, when there was blood put on the lintel, the doorpost, so that the death angel would pass over the Jews and would not harm them. And this Passover was celebrated from that time onward. And now it's so ironic that the very Passover lamb himself, Jesus Christ, is being delivered over by the Jews who believe they find guilt with him and they will not even go into Pilate's headquarters. Why? Because the Jews had nothing to do with the Gentiles and yet they're now ironically cavorting with the Romans so that they might put Jesus to death, the very Passover lamb. So while they are all about washing their hands, while they're all about keeping fastidiously all of the law of God so that they might, quote unquote, righteously be able to celebrate the Passover, they're killing the one unique, true Passover lamb. Terribly ironic. And so ironically sad, right? For Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The irony of this particular Passover, 33 AD, and the Passover, for the first time in human history, is personified in the very person of the Son of the living God, right here, in their midst. Guiltless, sinless, And as the one true Passover lamb, they are wanting to push him forward for execution while they wash their own hands of the entire affair so that they can celebrate Passover. Number two, the second irony. Let's call it the irony of accusation. 
First, the irony of Passover, and now the irony of accusation. Look at verses 29 and 30. So, Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now, here's their opportunity. Their opportunity is to bring before Pilate what they believe is a condemned man. He's, of course, not condemned. He is sinless. He is perfect. He has no reason to be accused by anyone. And isn't it ironic that these Jews who are sinners, both in word and in deed, are making accusation against Jesus, the very one who said to them earlier in John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? So the very ones who are guilty of sin are accusing the very one who is not a sinner, and their accusations are baseless. And yet, in their, in their cunning, and in their insensitivity, and in their wickedness, and in their rebellion, they are accusing an innocent man. What, what irony there. He's done nothing wrong. He even challenged them in John 8, 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? Which, which one of you says about me in my words or my actions what I actually are already saying and have been saying and will yet continue to say that you are the ones who have the sin and your sin will remain. And yet you're accusing me. You're bringing accusation against the only one who is utterly guiltless and for whom no one could find any fault whatsoever. Notice what they say. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. What do they mean? Well, they, they are insisting that the evil that Jesus is, is that Jesus is a blasphemer, right? If Jesus is claiming his equality with God, then that's blasphemy because you're in effect saying that you are indeed the Son of God. But of course, that's exactly what Jesus is claiming. And if his claims weren't true, then he would be the perpetrator of evil because he is telling the truth, because he is the sinless son of God, because he is equal with God, his father, because he is God in human flesh. The accusation does not stick. It is not true. He is not doing evil. And so they should never have delivered Jesus over to Pilate himself. No wonder Pilate says in verse 31, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. This is the third irony. We could call it the irony of desire. Not just the iron, irony of Passover and accusation, but now thirdly, the irony of desire. He said, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. Why weren't they already doing that? Well, because the Romans held the final execution opportunity. The Jews could not 
do capital punishment, right? It was a, it was a way to sort of curb uh, their lawlessness if they were to try to do something like they're doing with Jesus. The Romans held the ultimate verdict. Only the Romans could say, who shall die by capital punishment? And so they bring him to Pilate and he says... What has he done? What law has he broken? What evil has he perpetrated? And they said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That's true. And notice John's parenthetical comment, verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. If, if the Jews could legitimately prove that Jesus had committed capital punishment, like the charge of blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God, they still couldn't execute him on their own because only the Romans controlled the enforcement of the capital punishment. But so committed, so bloodthirsty are they to seeing Jesus killed, they trumped up some false charges. You remember, you read the other gospel accounts and uh, one witness, so-called, supposedly, comes and said, well, he said this. And another witness came and said, no, no, it was this. And they couldn't even agree with each other. Uh, there, was no, uh, there was no sense to the accusation of their charge. And the irony in all of this is that God was preventing the Jews from their desired unlawful murder of Jesus Christ. You know, it's happened before. When Jesus was teaching in the synagogues and in the temple, and uh, when he would talk about himself, when he would talk about himself as the fulfillment of prophecy, and it said that he was, was taken by them to the, to the very brow of the cliff to be thrown off, and he just slipped from among their midst. And now, in the very fulfillment of prophecy, the very word that Jesus himself had spoken about what kind of death he was going to die. He told his followers, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be unjustly tried. I'm going to be convicted of a crime that I didn't commit. And I'm going to die. And in three days, I'm going to rise again from the dead. And they didn't understand it. And these Jews who are intending to do murderous evil against him certainly don't understand them because their hearts are wicked, they're rebellious, they can't do what they would otherwise want to do, and so they have to, even though they don't want to, appeal to Pilate himself, even to Caesar if they have to, and Pilate is saying, judge him according to your own law, what has he done? And this was all, according to verse 32, exactly the plan of the Father. And you know, this is, this is difficult to wrap our minds around because you have the concurrence of two wills at the very same time that are operating. What two wills are they? You have the sinful Jews who they're going down this path and they're diverting to this direction because of their culpable ignorance, because of their wickedness, because of their disdain for the Son of God. They won't listen to Him. They say in John 8, why listen to him? And they want to put him to death. And they believe they're right. They think they're doing service to God. But concurrently, they are taking their own desires and they're moving in this direction, which is a very sinful direction, a very wicked direction, with a wicked end and a wicked conclusion. 
the very death of the Son of God. And yet at the same time, in concurrent fashion, here is God the Father, and going down the same track, here is God's will and God's desire, and what God is doing is He's moving in this direction with His desire, and it's a holy desire, it's a righteous desire, it's a providential desire to see His only Son, the one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, die at the hands of sinners, In the very place of their wicked desires, he has these righteous desires to see these things happen so that you and I could be delivered from our sins. You say, now how how does God pull this off? How how do both of these things happen at the same time? And you know, a couple of weeks ago, I think I misspoke and said, you know, that I had a bigger brain than anybody. What I meant to say was I got a fatter head than anybody. Because even with my big fat head that's bigger than most, I can't figure this out either. At least not totally, but I can understand it at least to a degree, and and it's this, that God is sovereign and that he has a plan at a certain point to turn his face away from his own son so that according to chapter 8 of Romans verse 32, he who did not spare his uh, his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if he's got a plan, and according to Isaiah 53, he turns his face away, and it pleased God to crush Christ. It was a righteous desire. And here's what sinful, wicked men did. Through their desire going in the opposite direction, but to the same end, we believe he's blasphemous. We believe we're doing service to God. This this is the irony of desire. The desire of God the Father to be glorified through the death of the Son and the irony of the desire of the Jews to put Him to death because they hate Him and they would never follow Him and they would never listen to Him. This is is the irony of ironies. And John says this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death He was going to die. Yes, It was the Father's plan. Here's another irony, number four. The irony of kingship. The irony of kingship. The irony of Passover, the irony of accusation, the irony of desire, and the irony of kingship. Look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. He just keeps going back and forth, remember? Because the Jews won't go into the headquarters because then they'll be defiled and that way they can't participate in the Passover, the very death of the Passover lamb. And so they wipe their hands of going inside, but Pilate comes out and speaks to them and he enters again into the courtyard area and he talks to the Jews and then he returns to the headquarters in verse 33 and he calls Jesus to him and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate says, Am I a Jew? Rhetorically, of course not. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? This might even be a a kind of question that's asking something like this Are you seditious? Are you an insurrectionist? Are you trying to be a rabble rouser within your own people and possibly to us? 
You know, there were a lot of those. According to the book of Acts, there were even a lot of would-be messiahs. They would, um, they would have an uprising. They would claim grandiose things about themselves. I'm the one. I'm the way. Follow me. And even Caiaphas, the one whom Jesus had just stood before in that second unjust trial, even he had said, look, isn't it, isn't it best for one man to, to die for the people rather than for our whole nation to perish? Look, if you've got guys who are rising up every so often and claiming to be the Messiah, if it sticks, the whole world will be changed. If they're not true, if they're not the real Messiah, it'll be a tempest in a teapot. Here today, gone tomorrow. So here's Jesus. Here's just another one of those. And the Jews seem to be incredibly exercised about this one. Uh, they can't understand why he's so blasphemous, why he's claiming equality with God. And, and in this uh, anger and in the maelstrom of the hour, uh, they're pushing him to Pilate. They want capital punishment to be performed. So maybe this one, maybe there's something to its claims because the Jews are so upset. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now, wouldn't this be a perfect opportunity for the sinless Son of God to say, okay, show's over. This is it. I've had enough of your sinfulness. You are all to be judged, and you shall be judged immediately. You shall all die, and you shall all be eternally judged. Even in one of the other gospel accounts, didn't Jesus say, if I wanted to, I could call down a legion of angels, and they'd all be incinerated. Judged immediately and forever. Is that the plan? No, not according to the Father. So what does Jesus do? Verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. You say, well, wasn't, wasn't one of them fighting, Peter? Didn't he take that, that little knife and didn't he try to lop off Malchus' ear, if not his head? Yes, and he did so. Well, he was fighting, but what did Jesus do? Peter, stop. Those who shall live by the sword, what you're doing now, shall what? You die by the sword. You'd be guilty of capital punishment. You killed another, and you yourself should be killed. That's what he means. That's what Jesus is saying. And so what does Jesus do? Miraculously restores the ear of Malchus because he's saying, in essence, we're not going to be kingdom fighters, not that, not with our flesh, not with fleshly weapons. We're not that kind of king and we're not that kind of kingdom. Here it is. My servants would have otherwise been fighting, but that's not who we are. Here's the real deal. You think you're going to deliver over me to the Jews because we're seditionists and insurrectionists? No. My kingdom's not from the world. You know, this is a lot like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, hey, we don't war according to fleshly weapons. We don't take up arms. Uh, in our evangelism, uh, we don't coerce people into coming into the kingdom. There are religions that do that even today, right? If you don't follow us, the sword will run through you. If you don't adopt our religion, 
we will force you to do so by the threat of death. The threat of your, your family being killed in front of your face. Jesus has no such compulsion. It's not that kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom of the Lord of Lords who is, who is taking His will and saying it's the Father's will that I'm after. My kingdom is not from the world. You say, what's the irony of that? Here's the irony. The irony is that the true king, King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one we just sung about, he's actually standing before a human king, a governor, Pilate, for whom the Lord of creation, the Lord Jesus Christ, actually created. He created Pilate. He formed him in his mother's womb. He's only the king because Jesus installed him as the king, as the governor, as it were. Just one notch down from Caesar himself. Jesus is in charge. It's his kingdom. He says, my kingdom's not like yours. Psalm 75. God exalts one king and deposes another. God puts one king in place and he defeats or dethrones another. We don't coerce people by the sword. We don't use ungodly weapons. We don't, we don't use fleshly weaponry. What we do is we smash ideologies, rival religions with the truth that Jesus Christ is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords and his kingdom is a kingdom of truth. You see, and that's why the message today is titled, Jesus and the Kingdom of Truth. It's not a kingdom of war. It's not a kingdom of the sword. It's not a military kingdom. It's a kingdom of truth. You say, wait a minute, but doesn't it say elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus said, I came not to bring peace, but a sword? What does he mean by that? Well, if you read the context, he's saying, there's going to be a divide. There's going to be a sword of division. And what kind of division is it? Because there will be people who will side with me, love me, follow me, follow the truth, and they will be at odds against their mother, their brother, their mother-in-law, their brother-in-law. There, there will be people who will be divided even within their own families. That's the kind of sword he's talking about. It's the sword of division between those who are of the truth and those who are not of the truth. That's what he's saying. And Jesus will not allow his kingdom to be one that takes control of the world by force because it's a spiritual kingdom, not a carnal one. And Pilate certainly doesn't understand that. He lives in a world, in a kingdom, in a day and age in which you conquered others by force so that you can have a greater kingdom. Jesus says, that's not my kingdom. It's the irony of the kingship. Here's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And here's a lowly, human, sinful king, Pilate, governor, standing before him. And Jesus is allowing these things to occur because he set his face like flint to go to the cross. He will not be denied. This isn't a sadistic look at the cross. 
This is a plan of the Father that Jesus is following to the letter perfectly. And he will not be dissuaded by anyone or any such kingdom that anybody else concocts for him to follow. Now, this is different. This is different from any other would-be Savior, would-be Messiah, would-be someone to follow. This is, this is very different. And what kind of kingdom is it? It's the kingdom of truth. That's number five. That's the fifth irony, the irony of truth. Look at verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, underline that, circle that, highlight that, for this purpose. Anytime Jesus says, for this purpose, mark it well. For this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose, I have come into the world. What is it? To bear witness to the truth. That's my kingdom. That's my kingdom. It's a kingdom of truth followers. And what kind of truth? Jesus himself, because he's the very embodiment of truth. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. I mean, one thing you find out about the gospel of John when you study it, even if you were to read it in one setting, and you started in John 1, and you ended in John 21, and as you read, you read things like this, truth and light. And you find that truth and light are prominent themes in the gospel of John. And so when Jesus says something like this, I have come, this is my purpose for being in the world, to bear witness to the truth, that's saying something. That's important. Underline that. And then he says this, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then immediately, Pilate said to him, what is truth? Here's, here's the first non-follower on the very response of the man who says, everyone who is of the truth follows my voice. Here's, here's exhibit A. Here's example number one. What is truth? Come on. You think you've got the corner on truth? Isn't that what the skeptics say even to our own day? Aren't these the scoffers? Come on, what is truth? Look, you Christians, you say that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? Come on. What is truth? You, you say that Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of truth? You say that John 4, 6, 14, 6 is true? You say that Jesus is the truth with the article before truth as though there's another, no other truth other than the truth of Jesus? Is that what you're saying? And if you and I would say, yes, of course, that's what we're saying. We would die for such truth. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And isn't this so ironic that the very Jew of all Jews, Jesus himself, who according to John 1:11 and following, has come to his own fellow Jews to be received, and they received him not. They didn't want to know him. John 8, why listen to him? Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. They follow me. They follow my teaching. 
They follow my lead. They follow my shepherding. And those who are of the truth, they hear my voice. You know, you might even be able to say, because it says what it says here in verse 37, everyone who is of the truth, that that's a, that's a very kind of synonym for what it means to be a Christian. You could say to someone, instead of saying I'm a Christian, you can say, I'm of the truth. I'm of the truth. And they might say to you, what are you talking about? What do you mean of the truth? You mean like you've, you've got the truth? You mean the truth of salvation? The truth of the world? The truth of creation? The truth of time? The truth of eternity? The truth of everlasting life? The truth of, of salvation? Uh, the truth of peace? The truth of, of abundancy? The, the truth of it all? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's the truth. I'm of the truth. And I know the one who is truth. And there's the skeptic. And Pilate is personified in it. What is truth? Here's the answer. He stands before you right now. He created you. He is the truth. You must be of the truth. And here's at least one Gentile, a Roman governor, who says, I don't believe. Why should I listen to you? The irony of truth is, you and I believe in the truth. And the only way we do so is because God opened our eyes. God unstopped our ears. And we know the truth. And we know the one who is truth. And we are of the truth because we listen to his voice and no others. And these Jews, they followed him not. They despised him. And now they want to kill him. And now they want to deliver him over to capital punishment because they think they're doing service to God. They think he's a blasphemer. And God concurrently is allowing all of this to happen in his grand plan, his providential doings, even in the midst of the scoffers saying what is truth. There's such irony there. And here's the last one. Here's the last one. This is... This is quite possibly the greatest irony of them all, at least for us, the irony of substitution. The irony of substitution. Look at the latter part of verse 38. After he had said this, after Pilate said, what is truth? He, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, and these are harrowing words, I find no guilt in him. It's almost as though the gavel has been, has been raised and it's about to come down with a not guilty verdict. I find no guilt in him. He's done nothing worthy of capital punishment. Even your own law hasn't convicted him. Even your own would-be witnesses haven't come together with a kind of credible testimony that convicts this man that he, in fact, is seditious. He's an insurrectionist. He's blowing up not only the Jewish nation, but even a threat to our own as Romans. And he doesn't say any of that. Here's what he says. I find no guilt in him. Now, would it be possible that the gavel comes all the way down and he declares Jesus not to be guilty and he sets him free? You say, no, and you'd be right because that's not the Father's plan. So the Father's plan 
is to allow the Jews in the engineering of his infinite divine mind to respond in this way. And they're culpable. They're culpably ignorant. And so Pilate says in verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. This is apparently what they did every year. There was one man. And this, this one man, whoever he might be, Pilate would say, you choose who that one man would be and I will release him so that he may help you enjoy your Passover. And so Pilate gives them the ultimate question, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He says he's a king. He says he's got a kind of kingdom that I don't understand. He says it's a kingdom of truth. He says those who are of the truth hear his voice. I don't even know what he's talking about. I don't believe in such truth. I'm cynical that there is even such a thing as truth. But I'm telling you this, every year I've done this for you and I will do it again. So do you want the king of the Jews? He says he's a king. Some of you are afraid that he's a king in the ultimate sense that maybe you shall be his subject and he shall tell you what to do and you don't want that. You're rebelling against even the very idea that Jesus is truly the king of the Jews. And so what do they respond? Verse 40. They cried out again. And you know what that means? That they had been doing it repeatedly. And they cried out again and again and again. They're, they're at a fever pitch. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now here's the irony, folks. Here's the irony. Barabbas is not a name. Barabbas is a kind of description. And do you know what it means? Son of the Father. So here's this wicked, sinful, true seditionist, true insurrectionist, because John says, now Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas deserved to die. This, this son of the father is the one who actually deserved to die, and the Jews are yet crying out in the opposite, no! Not Barabbas, not that son of the father. This would-be supposed son of the father, Jesus of Nazareth. There's, there's so much irony here. Listen to these. It is ironic that Pilate finds no guilt in Jesus, yet the Jews still want this innocent, sinless man to die. It is ironic that this particular Passover custom in 33 AD has Barabbas, whose name is son of the father, to be substituted for the real son of the father. It's ironic that a custom that came to be established as a guiltless man, Jesus, would die, while a guilty man, Barabbas, a robber, an insurrectionist, would be set free. And... Unless some of us say something like this, wait a minute, that's not right. That's, that's wretched. That's terrible. That's ghastly. That the guiltless son of the father should die on that tree 
and the guilty son of the father, Barabbas, should go free. Well, lest we become too righteously indignant at such a thing, we should say to and about ourselves, I am Barabbas. Because I'm guilty of sin. And I deserve to die. And we're not talking about some sadistic substitute, but we are saying this. In one sense, I'm so glad that Barabbas was substituted for Jesus. Because it means my very substitution. Right? I mean, he is an insurrectionist, and so am I of the heart. He is a sinner, and so am I of the heart. And I wouldn't say it like the Jews would say it, and I wouldn't say it like the angry mob is saying it. Not Barabbas, but Jesus. But I'm so thankful that Jesus was the one who substituted on that tree for my sins. Aren't you? Is this, is this in a strange but glorious irony? The divine plan of the Father that comes out so perfectly that you and I could have been substituted for by the sinless one. Not Barabbas. His death, his death on a cross, his ultimate persecution, his, his ultimate capital punishment would have meant nothing for you and me. But Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the guiltless one, the one who is the king of the kingdom of truth, he's the one who, while he didn't deserve to die, died in our place for the very ones like us, like you, like me, who very definitely, like Barabbas, deserved to die. And yet he died for us. Anybody seeing any glorious irony in that? Oh, we should. Let's bow our heads and praise God for such a thing. Father, while these glorious ironies of Barabbas and substitution and, and the guilty who is replaced by the guiltless, this is, this is sovereign love. This is a decree that you and I should have been the ones on that tree. And even then, because we're sinners, we're guilty, we would not have been the, the representative, we would not have been the right substitute, we would not have been qualified. And Father, your plan included this very one to die. And for the Barabbases of the world to be released like us. We are so grateful. We ask that we would sing hallelujah. Praise Yahweh for your divine mind and your divine plan for the substitution of Jesus Christ for sinners like us. Praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.